we help achieve our budgeted so that we can budget for better security systems. Um, in, in the seriousness, we do have a member scene after service today, and, and if, if you're interested in membership, even just learning what that means, see me or Brian, uh, or Phyllis, that's my host name, but um, we can tell you more about that. talk at it supposedly even know where we go from there. Great. All right. Yesterday was the 15th, right? That was the end of our three-year contract. I am, I've been, I've marked it on my church calendar. But that, but that has never happened in a service before. Um, yeah. No, it's, it's, that's happened before, but not during a service. I, I'm here more often, but yeah. I'd say something more, but I'll probably get sued for libel or something. Uh, so we're, we're in a series on the Ten Commandments. You know, when, um, when I was a kid, when I was in my early uh, teens, uh, my mom's mom, my grandmother, my nana, uh, was diagnosed, at least as best they could tell, uh, because they don't know until after you pass, uh, with Alzheimer's. And uh, for a while in the early stages of, of Alzheimer's, uh, she took turns living with uh, different siblings. Uh, she had five siblings. Um, it was difficult. Uh, she came to live with us in Illinois, and uh, it, some days she would have a great clarity of, of what was going on. And in other days, other moments, uh, she'd be lost. She'd be somewhere else. And I, I still remember vividly, uh, by the, the strongest memory I have is, is being out. And we had like a, a deck that we had turned into a sunroom. And, and I was in the sunroom with, with my Nana. And uh, she was convinced that I was a little boy who lived down the street. And, and as this went on, it became clear that she and her mom was a little girl. And I was a little boy who lived a few houses down. And I was trying to explain to her that, you know, I'm your grandson. And, and uh, this, this, you could see this horror come across her face. Because I think she realized on some level that what she was saying didn't make sense. And yet she's thinking she's a little girl. And yet she is as a grandson, which would be a rather horrifying thought, I think. Um, and, and yeah, just this, this, this look of dismay, and, and a, as it progressed, it got worse, uh, she moved back out east, my mom's family was from Philly, and, uh, we went and stayed with my uncle in Connecticut, it's close to the Moore family out there, um, and, and it, it deteriorated further, um, but she was surrounded by family, and she was surrounded by people who cared for her and loved her, and, um, were able to, to, to show her affection and care even when she couldn't express well what she needed or wanted or what was valuable to her. It was a type of honor for someone who had lived a long life and cared for so many so well. Um, a few months ago, I, uh, I can be a little snarky. Some of you know that uh, I, I have a I have a sarcastic streak in me. Uh, I think that's holy uh, when used when used appropriately. Um, it can be uh, not very holy if if not used appropriately. And I may or may not have been getting a little uh, snarky with with my parents. Um, I don't 
remember about what, and but uh, you know it's, it's always harder. With the ones you're closest to are the ones you're most easier to separate, whether it's a spouse or whether it's family or or whatever else. And my dad pulled out the uh, honor your father and mother line, and you know like. There's some, on some level, it's like that's kind of a cheap shot because that's what his parents always pull out, right? Uh, you're kidding. You're like, you're right. Like, I am not doing a good job honoring you, whether or not, you know, uh, everyone was right in the situation or not. I needed to honor them. And my snark was not uh, an exhibition of honor. And, and so I had to apologize and repent for that. We're looking at this commandment, um, the fifth commandment here. And honor your father and your mother, that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. And my big idea that I want us to take home this morning that, that we're going to work towards is that unless you honor your earthly parents, you cannot rightly claim to honor your heavenly parents. Unless you honor your earthly parents, you cannot rightly honor your heavenly parents. And in order for us to understand and, and to obey this command, especially this side of the cross of Jesus Christ, we need to take heed of, of the nature of the relationship being discussed in this command. We need to take a look at what it means to honor. And, and then we need to take a look at how the promise at the end of this verse, this, this line about your days will be long, how that's to be realized. So those are the three things we'll focus on and then then we'll move into, okay, what does this look like, this side of the cross? How do we apply this and live this out? But first, let's take a look at, at the nature of the relationship that's being discussed. Um, there, there are three key words, really, in this relationship. Father and mother are the two obvious ones. But the bigger one, the more subtle one, is you. And we need to talk about the you in this verse. There's probably no better known commandment on this list of ten than this one. We learned it as children, like I was talking about before. Um, I'm sure even those who, those of you who did not attend church or didn't attend church much, the line, honor thy father and thy mother, was somewhere in your household. You were told, particularly if you were being a brat or, or disobeying, No one ever chastised me as a child by saying, you know, Chris, thou shalt not say. Right? It just, fortunately. <laughs> but I didn't even get, thou shalt not covet. You know, that, that no one said that to me as a child. But I heard, honor thy father and thy mother a lot. And I'm guessing many of you are the same. And, and so I think I saw it as a children's command, primarily. My guess is you've not thought much about honoring or lack thereof since about junior high, right? When you went through a phase, probably starting around junior high or early high school, where you just didn't care what your parents thought. So whether you honored them or not didn't matter. Um, and then you became an adult and you didn't recognize this command as having much bearing on your life. But let me kind of turn this upside down for you because I think this command is primarily directed toward adults, not children. This command is primarily directed toward adults. And I'll make that case uh, uh, for three reasons I, I think that that's true. First, there's nothing in the context of these Ten Commandments that suggests that children are being singled out. Everything here in this passage is, is written to all of Israel. And Israel, like any nation, would be predominantly adults. It's on 
stats from 2012, and it's estimated that about two-thirds of America's population in 2012 was 15 or above. I doubt that's changed much in a couple years. And so the, the lion's share of our population, we would say, would be of age, certainly from Israel's context, um, and, and it would have been adults. Second, we know that in most cultures, including Jewish culture from ancient times, uh, that there's a recognition that, that children cannot fully appreciate the ramifications of contractual obligations. So that's why, for, for example, we impose an age of consent in many areas of law. Um, we, we do that with, with questions like, like sexual relations. We do that with things like alcohol and, and cigarette usage. We even do that with when you can serve in the armed forces. We believe that there are certain things that um, just require a certain level of maturity and understanding before they can be fully taken in. We can debate what those numbers are or should be. That's not my point. My point is, is that almost universally, we recognize that at some point below a certain threshold, children cannot fully understand the ramifications of the decisions that they might enter into. And so we don't hold them accountable for those things, and sometimes we even protect them from those things. Um, now remember here that the Israelites are making a covenant. They're making a covenant with Yahweh, the God of all creation. It's a binding, contractual obligation, and little children aren't able to appreciate that. So in, in Jewish culture, you know, it, it's common for children, particularly male children, to become bar mitzvah, that is, a son of the covenant. And that happens usually around their 12th birthday. And at this point, they are recognized as having an understanding great enough to be held accountable for the covenant stipulations. But until they're trained up and ready for that, they can't be fully held accountable. And so we, we have a general sense that little children cannot be understood. And again, this is not a contract with one's parents. Remember where this contract is coming from. This is a contract about honoring parents that's being made with Yahweh. Third, <coughs> to demand obedience, <coughs> excuse me, to demand obedience upon the youngest members of society and to emphasize tho those members to the exclusion of others, would be what we'd be doing if we said this is a command primarily for children, would be to sort of engage in a, a behavior modification, uh, a maintaining a series of do's and don'ts. Do this, do this, do this, don't do this, don't do this, don't do this. And that's not what the Bible ever teaches. The Bible doesn't teach mere behavior modification. That's the essence of legalism. Legalism is striving to be a good person or recognizing others as good people on the basis of an outward conformity to a standard. It's not that conformity to God's standards outwardly or otherwise is bad. It's not. It's good. But legalism is only concerned with assessing people by an outward legal standard, not by God's holiness. So when you take a principle like this and you use it as a club with children, you run the great risk of trying to force them into an artificial holiness, an external righteousness that conforms to a cultural rule or law, but without impacting the heart. And guess what? the heart has a tendency to rebel. And since young children cannot easily, and sometimes cannot at all, make sophisticated decisions about love, about commitment, what the Israelites are doing, pledging to love and commit to Yahweh. And since the Bible never teaches us that we should judge people's worth or moral goodness, merely on the basis of conformity to legal stipulations. It's difficult to see how this commandment applies in any special way to children. 
It's not the antisemitic project that is. But it's a plan that's primarily for Jews. And we do well, well remember that. It means, if nothing else, that this plan is relevant for each of us this week. But let's look at the other two parties, the mother and the father. Who are they? Well, obviously, in most of Israelite cases, uh, this would be a biological parent. But we should probably go beyond that as well. Ancient Israelite law, and this is a point that we will come back to more and more, especially as we move through the latter half of these Ten Commandments. This sort of ancient law was not written like our law. We try to conceive in our society, in modern-day America, we try to conceive of law for every specific circumstance. And if the law doesn't apply to the specific set of circumstances we are dealing with, it's irrelevant. So we've got this story, and I'm not, I'm not making any comment on it, um, right or wrong. It's just it's newsworthy for me, as you guys have all heard it, paid attention to it probably a little bit. Um, there's this story about Donald Trump Jr., uh, Donald Trump's son. And apparently, um, what we know or what's being reported is that Trump Jr. received an offer of some dirt on Hillary Clinton uh, through an intermediary. The source of the information was described to him as being connected to the Russian government support of his father. And for his part, Trump Jr. says the offer was a smokescreen, that they really wanted to talk about something else, and nothing came of it. And despite all that, some have suggested it was illegal to even pursue the meeting. Um, but a number of other lawyers, it seems like most lawyers out there, and I'm not, I'm not an expert, but it's interesting to me that it's, it seems like there's a lot of people saying that it wasn't technically illegal. This is, you know, this is how we talk about it. It's not technically illegal. Um, for it to be technically illegal, what he was trying to obtain would have to have fit the definition of a thing of value under the statute, um, or we would have had to have been in an aggressive wartime posture with Russia, you know, and that requires very specific technical declarations of war. And, and, and so like all these different you know, boxes have to be ticked to make it an illegal act. Uh, and if the, all the boxes aren't ticked, it's a, it's a legal act, whether or not you think it was a good act or not. That's just that's kind of how we think about law, isn't it? Right? It has all these, so we, we complain about legal loopholes because the way our laws are written are very technical, they're very precise, and if something doesn't fit directly in and mark all the boxes, it doesn't apply. Right? And we get frustrated by that uh, from, from time to time uh, because sometimes especially those of us who are not lawyers, don't fully understand all those technical details, and sometimes it seems like, how can you come up with sensitive rules? Well, the Israelites would agree with, with our sentiment on that and disagree with the lawyers among us. Sorry, Candace. But um, they, they would say, sure, let common sense rule. Uh, they would present uh, general rules. Uh, they would apply... Uh, sort of case studies of what the application of that rule would be to kind of give the parameters for that law's application. And then they would allow uh, the elders of society, the, the wiser members of society, to use their discretion and wisdom and their knowledge of God's word to apply those principles in a way that brought justice. And so... Whereas in American society, it might be okay to say they didn't break the letter of the law, but they may have broke the spirit of the law, and then they get off scot-free. The way ancient law, especially ancient Israelite law, was written, there really wasn't much of a distinction there. If you broke the spirit of the law, you broke the law. It didn't matter if there was a bunch of boxes all correctly ticked. And so... Given that is the case, it, it would not do for a person to protest that such and such a person was 
not her mother, but her stepmother, so they don't need to honor them. That, that wouldn't do. It, it would not do to argue that this, this is not my father, this is my wife's father. That, that wouldn't do. It, it wouldn't be acceptable on, on any grounds to do anything less than to honor an adopted parent, a step-parent, a guardian who filled the role of a parent. In some cases, we might even be able to make the case that this would extend farther up the chain to older and older generations as well. So the, the application of the law, even under ancient Israelite culture, even in its original context, would have extended far beyond just your immediate biological parents. The larger cultural implications here, beyond blood relations, uh, beyond marital relations, uh, and even ancestors. But what, is the, what does that mean? So the upshot of this is that this command is likely extremely relevant for everyone in this room. A and if you're a note taker, and you're one of those people who's taking notes, uh, perhaps write down the names of some of those people in your life who were parental to you. The people who have in some way cared for you and provided for you, however perfectly or imperfectly. They may be biological family, family by way of a marriage or family by way of adoption. They may be family friends or neighbors or godparents or grandparents who functioned in that role for you. But who are those who were parental? Because whatever else you say, the, this command will apply to your relation with them. And what this command says is that you have an ongoing obligation to that person or persons or those people. And what that obligation is, is, is sort of the subject of our second point, what it means to honor. So what, it, what is that part of the verse? Well, the command here, the nature of the obligation is to honor. And, and it's a vague term. It's a vague term in the sense that every culture seems to have a different understanding of what it means to honor someone or something. Even within our own country, different parts of the country would parse it differently. It, they would parse it very differently. I've been working the last week and a half with missions teams um, who are coming in to serve with other churches in Cleveland. And a lot of them are coming up here from the south. And they just they have a very different culture. They have a very different understanding of, of the way the family works than many of us do here in the north. And so I, I would guess that their idea of what it looks like to honor someone is probably different than it is up here. Some of us uh, in this room are from very different cultures, uh, even from other countries. And, and, and the ideas of honor in those places are, are different than the American ideal of honor. And chances are your application of this rule, however you understand this, especially if you're American, is based significantly on your cultural baggage because I think most of us, we've understood it as a proxy for obedience. When we were told as children to honor our parents, it meant we needed to obey them. And quickly. And that's at least partially true. Paul taught in both Ephesians and Colossians that children should obey their parents. And in Ephesians, as, as David read this morning, he backs it up by referring to this command. He says, children, obey your parents. And then he cites this commandment as evidence for his point. So certainly some level of obedience is required. And we'll say more on that in a moment. But we want to know what did Yahweh mean when he spoke honor to the Israelites at Mount Sinai uh, in, in, to the 15th century B.C. Israelites. Now, the basic sense of this term honor is sort of a, a heaviness or a, a weightiness. That is, uh, things that are honorable have weight, they have heft, they have significance. And the word could be used of a, a literal heft. Sometimes they would actually describe things as being heavy with the same type of term. 
uh, but you can see how that would morph into a metaphorical text, a metaphorical weightiness. And so when we honor something, we ascribe weightiness to it. We, we deem it to be valuable. And, and that's sort of the basic sense of the word. And as I looked at how the Hebrews used the idea uh, throughout the Old Testament, something struck me. The idea of honoring someone or something often carried with it the explicit mention of an action. Usually a gift or something of substance that was offered as the means of honor. I suspect that it was implicit in many of the other cases. And what this tells us is that biblical honoring is not merely a mental state. It's not simply thinking highly of someone or being generally respectful with our attitude around the person. Rather, honor is an expression of appropriate consideration of another person's reaction. Honor is an expression of appropriate consideration of another person through actions. And I get that from just real brief, and I'll blast you with a few, uh, places like Numbers 22 and 24, uh, in which Balak promises to honor Balaam, certainly meaning riches of some sort, in return for getting Balaam to curse Israel. In Judges 9, olives are described as a treat that are used to honor humans and gods. In Judges 13, Manoach wants to honor the angel of Yahweh, and his response is to offer a sacrifice. In 1 Samuel 2, God complains that the Israelites have honored their own people more than Yahweh by taking the best part of the sacrifices for themselves. In 2 Samuel 10, David sent his servants, perhaps bearing gifts, to comfort King Hanun of the Ammonites after his father died. It was described as honoring him. And so forth. Some of these actions were payments for service rendered. Some were acts of respect. Some were acts of worship. Some were acts of care. But all were acts. So honoring involves some sort of action. But what sort of action would be required for a parent or a parental figure? And, and here we have to say the Bible doesn't give a ton of specifics. It doesn't spell it out. And, and what that suggests to me is that a good deal of what it means to honor is probably culturally oriented. We do have this one passage in, in Deuteronomy, in Deuteronomy 21, sort of a grim passage, a, a child who continually rebels and continually disregards his parents' instructions, even though they have properly disciplined him, who is liable to capital punishment. That, by the way, is a concern that goes way beyond not, you know, a mere not listening to your parents. It's not like, don't put that in your mouth. You put it in your mouth, that's it. I'm taking you out to the, the community, the public square, and we're, we're going to have a stoning. That is a lot, lot, the language is a lot more severe than that. Um, this is sort of like prescriptions for how you deal with a future menace to society before they become a menace to society. It's like for us Clevelanders, this is like what probably should have happened to the, uh, the torso murder killer before the torso murder killer got as far as he did, which is, if you don't know the story, we'll just give you a crazy, strange, and incomplete phrase. But um, you could say that the opposite of honoring a parent would be consistent, persistent rebelliousness. That's about as far as I can get in terms of specifics of what the Bible has to say. But I think that we can discern that in, a, a, in general, obedience to one's parents was considered action that expressed appropriate consideration of their honor. Paul, Paul says as much when he tells the Ephesians and Colossians, children, obey your parents. The term child there does not necessarily refer to a minor but it refers to a person with respect 
to his or her parents. And Paul adds a caveat that I think is certainly implicit in the Old Testament. He says, obey your parents in the Lord. Which is to say that obedience to your parents is contingent upon the request being honoring first to God. And that's another idea that we're going to come back to in a minute. But because the Bible gives us two other specifics, it would seem like the act of honoring is perhaps somewhat culturally specific. And, and there is, though, one crucial way we need to honor our parents that I think is implicit, almost bordering on explicit in this passage, that's evident in the way the ancient Hebrews lived, and it's contained in the promise of this verse. So we're going to turn to the the promise of this verse, and then we're going to look at some new covenant implications for us. And the nature of the promise here, uh, God says to Moses that this is to be done, honoring your father and your mother, that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God gives you. The word for land here is not the one I was expecting to see. There's couple words for land in Hebrew, um, two primary ones, and this one points more toward the ground or even the soil, and it might hint at the agricultural nature of this society. We've mentioned it before, but imagine, imagine again living in an agricultural society in the late Bronze Age if you lived, it was because of the land, too much rain. Too little rain, fire, locust, disease. These things for us, they raise our grocery bill a little bit or lower it a little bit, but they don't have any substantial impact on our lives. But for ancient Israelites, they were ancient Israelites, they were life and death. By working the land, you had food or you had goods you could sell or barter in order to procure other goods like food. But there came a time, just like there comes a time for us, that uh, such grueling manual labor becomes nearly impossible. Perhaps very, very few of the very, very rich was an enormous minority, an enormously small minority in this society, in ancient Israelite society. Perhaps they could have had servants who would continue the profitability of the family estate. But the rest, the vast swath of others, they relied on their children to care for them. And maybe the most important way children cared for their parents was in sacrificially caring for them when they were unable to care for themselves. That's becoming more and more foreign to us because we have pensions, we have annuities, we have IRAs, and of course, Social Security insurance. And so it might be tempting to think that we can alleviate the need to honor our parents in this way, but consider that these measures take care of financial needs as long as there's not uh, an emergency or a desperate medical need. And even then, they're often not enough. And what's more, finances are not enough. Company, companionship, conversation. Our honoring of our parents must be more than transaction. It needs to be relational. But of course, it's transactional too. It, it wouldn't do any good to say, well, you know, I, I love and honor my parents through my relationship with them, but I can't pull anything out of my pocket as to that. If our culture has determined, for instance, if that we will honor our parents and our, and our elders among us by providing them a safety net of social security, that's what our particular culture has determined, whether you agree with it or not, that's where we are, uh, it would be a violation, I think, of the fifth commandment, for instance, uh, to avoid paying your taxes, say, by working under the table or not reporting your income to God. But... Jesus spoke of this commandment when he confronted the Pharisees about their practice of korban. 
they were able to offer their possessions as given to God. And the technical term was korban. And such property that was so given to God would then be unavailable to a fifth, a needy parent. A vow of korban was typically irrevocable. And we don't understand, it's been lost to history a little bit, all the particulars of how such a vow worked. But it does seem like the person could prevent access to a gift by making it dedicated to God, while on the other hand, still retaining a prerogative over the thing. And it could at times become a way to avoid caring for a parent while at the same time claiming to be very religious and righteous. And the bottom line for Jesus and for us is the need to care for our parents is something that even Jesus esteemed. He criticized them heavily for this, for this practice because the need to care for our parents was something that was given. But why this commandment? this commandment well you can see if the Israelites practice a habit of honoring their parents in particular by caring for them when they're unable to care for themselves very well what is that going to do to their parents it's going to extend their lives in the land that God is taking them to and as they give a witness uh, to this sort of honoring and teach their subsequent generations to do the same they'll follow in their model and their children will honor them by caring for them and extend their life in the land and a big part of the promise of this verse is the natural implication of what it means to care for one another that if we have people caring for us and watching out for us we will naturally live longer to God's blessing why was this so important to Yahweh? Well, he gets some hints in Old Testament. Malachi 1.6. In Malachi 1.6, Yahweh, speaking through the prophet Malachi, charges the priests of Israel with failing to give Yahweh his due in the sacrifices. He says, a son honors his father and a servant his master. If then I am a father, where is my honor? And if I am a master, where is my fear, says the Lord of hosts, to you, O priests, who despise my name. See, God is a father to us. In fact, Luke says that Adam, the first man, was the son of God. In that Adam is God's direct creation. He forms him from the dust of the earth. And so God not only produced us, but he he cares for us, and he provides for us, and he disciplines us, and he nurtures us. What's more, for those of us who are Christians, we believe that though we rebelled against our heavenly parent and, and have been separated from him because of our sin, nevertheless, God loves us so much that he sent his son, Jesus Christ, God in the flesh to live as we live yet without sin and to bear the penalty of death that we rightly deserve for our sins so that all of us who place our faith and our trust in him and repent and turn away from our sins receive new life, eternal life with God. It's described in scripture as an adoption into the family of God. And God becomes a father to us in a new way. But even more so for those of us who are Christians because God is twice our father, first as our creator and then as our adopter. And God gives us parents to show the world something of what he is like. Some parents obviously do this better than others. But none of them do it perfectly. No human parent, no matter how great they might seem, could possibly be mistaken for our Heavenly Father. But our earthly parents represent, that is, they represent God 
to us. They are an authority figure over our lives from our earliest days. And therefore, honoring our parents is a way that we honor God. God has orchestrated this order for human civilization. And to disregard it is not just dishonoring to our parents, whether biological or adopted or those who are in a parental role to us, but it's actually dishonoring to God who made us. And that's why if we don't honor our parents, we have to take a hard look at our hearts and ask ourselves whether do we actually honor God. So what does this mean for us as Christians then? Well, it gets blown up uh, in terms of it gets bigger, a lot bigger, and a lot cooler. Mark 10, 29 through 30, uh, Jesus is talking with his disciples, and um, there is a warning that, that there will be persecutions. There will be fallings away. There will be people who hate them, disown them, reject them for following Jesus, including their own families. And Jesus says, truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life. Paul similarly counsels Timothy, the young pastor in Ephesus, to not rebuke an older man, but encourage him as you would a father. Younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, younger women as sisters in all purity. See, by God's adoption through the, the blood of Jesus Christ as the purchase price, we are brought into a new family in Christ. The church. And in this family, we become brothers and sisters. And, and even to the extent that there are those who have walked with Christ longer or who have more gray hairs on their heads, fathers and mothers or children depending on which direction the relationship goes. There is this reality that our adoption by the blood of Jesus Christ, that is a blood relationship stronger and thicker and purer and more unimaginable than any blood relationship that we have on earth. It's an eternal relationship. Those of us who are brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ will not ever cease being brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ. But we will worship and serve the eternal God together for eternity. Sadly, there, there are those of us who have biological family who do not know Jesus Christ. Who have not been purchased by his blood who have not been adopted into the family of God, and we pray that they would turn in faith and repentance to the living God. But in an interesting twist, I am closer and have more in common with an Iraqi who loves Jesus Christ. a North Korean who loves Jesus Christ to a Kenyan who loves Jesus Christ that I have never met than I do to a biological family member who has rejected the love of Jesus I will worship and serve alongside 
alongside that Iraqi, alongside that Korean, alongside that Kenyan, is God's heavenly kingdom forever. And that is a blood relationship that is truly thicker than water. And so in the family of God, we have these new relationships. We see the early church diligently caring for one another, for widows, for the old, for the poor who cannot care for themselves. For us as Christians, to honor our father and our mother does not mean that we get to disregard our biological parents if they're not followers of Jesus Christ, but it does mean that we have an even higher and greater priority that we need to care for and honor those among us in the family of Jesus Christ who are older than us, who are wiser than us, and have gone before us, who are weak because of age or sickness or health. We have an obligation to them. We have an obligation to care for them. We have a biological commitment, yes, but we have a spiritual commitment that goes far beyond that. Part of us growing as a church is not just, everyone always wants to look at numerical growth in the church, but there is a depth that needs to happen in our growth as a church. I'm not, just, I'm not calling us now, this is any church. A and part of our growth is, is learning to, well, we, we're, we are in a culture in, in 21st century America that values youth, loves youth, that, you know, the, the things that make money, the things that are hot, the things that are attractive, are, are youth-directed, are youth-oriented, and there's nothing necessarily wrong with that, but we cannot forget that we have an obligation to those generations that have gone before us. And we should show that and reveal that in the church more than any place else in society. We have a, a church here that skews younger because of where we are. In, in, in near the downtown Cleveland area where, where younger people tend to be flocking into the city. But that doesn't mean that we get to ignore the time. We, we have some gray hairs. I was driving, I found a few more. That means I get more honor, right? So I was driving yesterday, I'm like, there's a gray hair back there. It's not even a hidden one. It's awesome. Um, I'm not going to call anyone out because they've got more than me. But we, we do need to honor one another. And in honoring one another, we show people a different way of life. We show people a different way of being, a way that in which we honor our parents. We honor those who are parental. We honor those who've gone before us. And in so doing, we are showing honor to the God who made us, who is our ultimate parent. Both in how we parent, both in how we shepherd those who are younger than us, we show what God's love and concern and discipline looks like to an outside and unbelieving world. But we also show what God is like in our obedience and our honoring and our respect and our regard for those who have gone before us. Just as much now. We, we talk so much in the church about being good parents, well, we probably don't talk about enough, but being good parents and, 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 uh, and discipleship and discipling other people. And I think that all those things uh, do reveal what God is like, but the, the upward relationship is just as important. How we respect those who are older than us and how they've gone before us, it reveals something to an outside, a dying, watchful world of the kind of honor and respect and reverence given to God. And so in doing that, we reveal to people what kind of character God has. And so unless we honor our earthly parents, whether they be our parents in the faith, our brothers and sisters who have gone before us, 
church, or whether it's our biological parents or our adoptive parents, those who've just been parental to us, that unless we honor those parents we've been given here, we're not rightly parenting our heavenly Father. Abba, Father. Let's pray. Father, and it is right today especially to call you out. You have loved us and you have cared for us and you have provided and nurtured and disciplined us. And we know that your discipline is because of your great love for us. Forgive us that we too often do not show you the honor that you deserve. Sometimes we do not show you the honor that you deserve in that we do not honor well those who have walked before us, whether in this life or in this faith. Let us be a people that show deference to those who are wiser, who are older. In Christian years and in earthly years, May we seek them out. May we show them love and consideration. May we not neglect our duty to provide for and care for those among us who are in our community, who might join our community, who perhaps cannot care for themselves, knowing that you, as well as they, have been bought by the same blood of Jesus Christ adopted into your great family. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand and continue worshiping.